Hey everyone, welcome to Danny Chats. This is episode number 23 and today I'm joined by Rachel uh, and this is the first time I've spoken to someone on the podcast that's had a lung transplant so it's quite exciting for me. Uh, hi Rachel, how are you? Hi Danny, I'm doing well, how are you? I'm very good, thank you. Uh, whereabouts are you calling from? Uh, New Jersey in the United States. Very nice, very nice. And uh, so we, we had the time change today. Did you have a time change? We had ours, but about two weeks ago. <laughs> ah, yeah, see. <laughs> yeah, that's that's funny. Um, so uh, tell me a bit about your story, your, your lung transplant, because it's incredible. Um, you know, I think there's such a big organ to have taken out and replaced. It definitely is. Um, I mean, it's came on completely unexpected for me. Um, just a little bit of background to kind of go all the way back. Um, I've been, I was diagnosed with uh, rheumatoid arthritis at the age of four. Um, so that was apparently incredibly young. That's It's very rare to actually have a uh, child that young diagnosed with full-blown rheumatoid arthritis. Um, and when I was diagnosed back in, I think it was the early 90s, there wasn't, you know, a ton of research. Every year we have more and more research. So when I was diagnosed, my parents kind of told, were told that you're either going to have, you know, more of an exacerbation with your joints or there is a systemic version that kind of attacks your organs with inflammation. And they were, you know, oh, no, she has the, the joint type. So we didn't really think we had to worry about that. Flash forward. 20 some odd years later and apparently it's now known that rheumatoid just affects you systemically regardless so the um the the inflammation that we thought was really just attacking my joints was attacking my lungs and i think knock on wood luckily that was the only organ that was affected um and i mean i going through growing up because of the arthritis, I wasn't really an athletic kid, so we didn't really notice if yeah. it was affecting my lungs at all. Um, when I graduated college and everything, I ended up getting a bout of pneumonia that landed me in the hospital, and that's when we really started seeing a pulmonologist just to kind of track my healing. And about a year after I had the pneumonia, he noticed my lungs were not healing at all. Um, so we had a bunch of tests done. I was actually tested for things like cystic fibrosis, even though, you know, I had never, you know, showed any symptoms of that, just to kind of rule everything out. And then a biopsy confirmed that it was um, fibrosis. So it was advanced scarring of the lungs. And uh, from that point on, I think that was 2011. Um, I was pretty stable. You know, I, again, was not doing, doing anything crazy athletic, yeah. but I was, um, you know, getting on with life. I was working and, and all of that. And then about 2015 was when I saw my doctor and he was like, okay, well, you're losing a lot of weight and, you know, your lung function is slowly dropping. So he suggested that I get tested for oxygen, which I was not happy about at all. And then followed that up with, oh, and I think you should be evaluated for a lung transplant, which was like the roof caving in <laughs> yeah so that's a big shock yeah oh huge, huge. Did, you, did you so one i didn't i didn't realize that um arthritis can affect the the, the organs so obviously most people know it as uh something that affects the joints and the bones 
Yeah, yeah. So there's a few different, I mean, probably I don't want to say a few because then I know I'll exclude somebody, but there's actually various different forms of arthritis out there. The one that I think people think of mostly when they think of arthritis is the osteoarthritis. So, you know, you played a lot of sports and now like it's like bone on bone and degenerative kind of the things like when you get older, people think of that's more osteoarthritis, but rheumatoid arthritis is actually, um, it's about inflammation. So it's an autoimmune disease where basically your body goes haywire. And instead of, you know, attacking outside germs and things like that, it turns inward and starts attacking your body. Um, And that one actually has a genetic component. So actually a few people on my mother's side um, had rheumatoid, but they were all diagnosed fairly later in life, like 50s, 60s. So I got to, I got to be the lucky, (laughs) the lucky young one to draw the card. Um, so did you have asthma pumps or anything? Was you, did they think you, you know, it was asthma or anything like that or? At first I was given, um, it wasn't until after the, the pneumonia that, you know, when we started seeing the pulmonologist that they, as they were trying to confirm that it was the fibrosis, I was on like some inhalers and, you know, bronchodilators, anything to kind of like see if they could open up the lung function and, I mean, it it might have worked a little bit, but it was really just um, a a pretty steady decline up until I was put on oxygen in 2015, and then that that helped, I would say, alleviate like you know the the gasping and, and all yeah. of that. But even that was, you know, as as I was on it for a while, um, I think I ended up being on oxygen 24 hours a day for about. I think it was like a year and a half or so and that w- that even kind of steadily decreased where you know my lung function kept going down the oxygen increased and you know it it was not not fun being tethered to a uh, an oxygen tank yeah i was gonna ask so how does that work um obviously when you're at home you can have a tank but if you want to go out do you have to carry it like a big tank like on a trolley yeah. or so at first, um, at first my lung function wasn't too terrible. So they have these little like portable, they call them concentrators. So at home you have like the big plastic yeah. one that you plug into the wall and, you know, so that keeps you going continuously. But if your lung function is kind of in like a certain range, they give you like a little portable concentrator that pulls air in and then, you know, puts out fresh oxygen for you. Um, but the the downside is you have to you have to kind of know your limits and know how quickly the battery is going to run up on the machine. So that's that's kind of like the first stage that I went through. And then as my lung function decreased more, I did have to, you know, use the big metal aluminum tanks that they have. And, and those, to be honest, the the portable ones that we had, I think they only lasted about an hour and a half. Oh, wow. So you had like you had to know where you were going and definitively like how many tanks to bring. Otherwise, you know you could get you can get stuck in a bad situation. Yeah, yeah, you don't want to be caught out without your tanks. Absolutely not. <laughs> and so you know you get told you need this lung transplant. And had you really spent much time in hospital before? Had you had any surgeries or? Not. Uh, I had surgery once when I was I think about. 11 or 12 it was corrected foot surgery so I was kind of in there for I think I don't know a few days and but it was nothing honestly the the first 
what I, not that that's not major surgery, especially for a kid, but um, the first major surgery was really the biopsy that I had to, to kind of diagnose the fibrosis. And I remember like going in for that and going through my head was like, oh my goodness, they're going to like puncture into my lung to take a piece of it like I thought that was like the wildest thing and it was crazy that they were gonna like perform surgery on like a vital organ like again not not that things can't go wrong when they're doing any sort of surgery but I was like this is like a vital organ so other than those two experiences I had luckily as a kid even though I was sick pretty much my whole childhood I wasn't really in the hospital. I had, you know, fairly good experiences with like the medications that my rheumatologist has prescribed. So this was like, again, in my mind, like, oh, wow, this is like a major surgery. So it was it was pretty daunting to hear it. Yeah. And a biopsy, like you say, it's, it's not something to take lightly. I mean, absolutely. And it's, I'm presuming it's kind of the same as the liver biopsy they had. So they put like a tiny needle and they take a sliver out and they're able to, um, you know, analyze it. Is that kind of right. the same? I think um, I'm not sure if they use a needle. I know I did have to go into like an operating room and I was put under general anesthesia. And I have, I think, two scars like one on my back and one under my arm so I don't know whether they kind of came in you know from both angles and I think they took um almost like a little one of those pincers and take a snip out and as they're taking the snip out they put like a staple and it all seemed very high tech and you know cool to me but uh but yeah so that's that was the biopsy for the lung Wow. And so they did they do a biopsy of both lungs or did they already have an idea of which lung that needed replacing? No, they well, they actually did. Um, they just did the, the biopsy on the right lung. I know they gave me a reasoning why. I think it was like the way the lobes were set up. It was like an easier way to get the, the biopsy on that side. Um, but they, from all the testing, like the CAT scans and things like that, they had determined that my lungs pretty much were equally as fibrotic as yeah. the other one. So it it didn't really matter, I guess, in their mind, which one they took the sample from as they were both kind of affected by the same um, the same disease. Yeah. Um, so then they've told you you need this. And then what sort of process, what, what happened just before the operation? Sure. Um, yeah, did you have to go to hospital for like, obviously all the checks and then did you have like mental checks and everything? Yep, <laughs> all the all the evaluations. Yeah, so yeah. we went um, we went to one of the the hospitals near me um, in New York, and because they they had like you know larger lung transplant uh, centers there, so we went to one of those hospitals and basically went through the full evaluation protocol. You know, they all sorts of testings. They tested my heart to make sure like there was no you know swelling or enlargement of the heart and you know tons of scans of my lungs of all different sorts uh blood tests um and then like you said they also there put you through you know the like a social worker talks to you a psychiatrist talks to you to make sure that you know not only are you physically healthy enough to withstand the surgery but that you know 
mentally and, and socially like your support system outside. Um, and because we're in the U.S. too, they also had you speak with a financial advisor to make sure you were financially able to go through, um, you know, with not just the surgery, but also affording all of the medications or any, you know, doctor's visits, testings and things like that after the surgery as well. Yeah, I was actually talking to a friend about that earlier, like um, she was asking about the cost of stuff in America and she's like, how do people afford it? And it is crazy, like the, the, there's so much pressure and it's so daunting and scary as it is. I can't imagine what that pressure added on to it is like, really. It's it's very, I, I honestly, I I cannot imagine because fortunately I was one of the lucky ones that I, I was able to, through my company, um, I, I work from home and they've been very, they were extremely accommodating. So I was actually able to keep my job literally like I worked like up until like the day before I had surgery. Um, and so I, through them, had really good insurance and did not have to pay costs out of pocket. But I mean, I've I've heard horror stories from people in like the same program who have to do like, you know, fundraisers and things like that just to be able to get accepted into the program, which like you said, I mean, when you're told you need major surgery, that's mind shattering enough. And yeah. then you have to also be able to afford it on top of it. That's it's uh, definitely not a good situation. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that you worked all the way up until your transplant. Um, did you find that that kind of helped? Because for me, I was off work until that whole time and I know a lot of people get signed off and they, they could be waiting a year two years three years and without this you know no work to focus on you can kind of become lost so was that good in a way I think so I I mean I definitely I definitely threw myself into work especially because I was at home it wasn't like I was you know carting oxygen and tanks back and forth yeah. and things like that but I definitely you know it, it was a nice distractor um from having to you know focus like we Definitely had our, our routine down with, you know, I had my go bag ready for whenever they did call. And, you know, we had all our doctor's appointments and things like that. But it definitely did help to have work as a um, kind of like an outlet. So it was it was kind of a place where I wasn't like sick, Rachel. I was, you know, Rachel, the colleague who could continue to work. And I was, you know, participating in things yeah. and, you know, not not just living as Rachel, the lung transplant, uh, you know, patient. Yeah, that's really nice. And you mentioned the uh, ready to go bag, and it's actually something that we don't really talk about, but it's really a vital piece of kit, isn't it? Because oh, know, it absolutely is. Can you remember what you had? I did. I had um, a nice, comfy change of clothes. I picked. I made sure I picked a sweatshirt that zipped up, so that way I wouldn't have to like after yeah. post transplant Good have idea. to wiggle into a shirt. Um, but you know a t-shirt, like just some nice comfy clothes to, to kind of leave the hospital in. And I think I had, oh, one or two of the Harry Potter books and things like that. Um, you know, just some things to, to kind of keep your mind, uh, keep your mind distracted while you're in the hospital kind of recovering. Yeah, that, and I always say to people a charger because. Yes, phone charger. Uh, you do not want to be stuck there, especially nowadays that everyone's got a phone, you know, you've got everything on your phone. So you, that's the last thing you want to get. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So how long was you in hospital for? Um, so I actually, I went on the list in January of 2017 and I was extremely lucky. I only waited on the list for two and a half weeks wow, and got brought in as a backup um, because, because of the, the 
my disease nature was fibrosis, I was able to either accept two lungs or a single lung because my, um, you know, the native lung wouldn't pass anything on to the transplanted lung. So I was actually brought in as a backup to somebody who needed two. And we were, you know, I kept telling myself, oh, this is just one of those dry runs. (laughs) We're going to go ahead and, you know, go home after this and that'll be it. And it ended up being my time. Um, So I think that was, I actually received my transplant on February 6th of 2017. And I was discharged out of the hospital uh, 10 days later on the 16th. Wow, 10 days. That's incredible. Was that your first call in as well? First call. Yeah, that's so good. I'm so pleased for you because it is like distressing and it's hard when you get the the calls that it's not the time. So 10 days and for a lung, like I'm presuming you've, you know, they're going to have to cut your chest open to do this operation. It's not small, right? They do cut it open, but um, I didn't have the the way that they do it here. I didn't have like the sternum crack. They actually did an incision just right under my left breast and from what I've read, I, I like Googled it afterwards because I was like, this is crazy how they did it. But they actually take your ribs and just kind of separate them and somehow take the old lung out and slip the new one in. And so I just have one little incision that actually like doesn't really show at all, which is crazy. That is absolutely incredible. Like amazing. It's brilliant what they can do. Absolutely. Yeah, because I was expecting, you know, like the full chest to be opened. and That's what I thought, too. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's mad. So did they not tell you what it, the procedure was beforehand or? They did. They did during uh, one of the evaluations. That's when, like I, like you had said, when I went in for the first evaluation and we spoke with a surgeon, uh, I was expecting like, you know, full chest crack they gotta like you know open you up and he was like no we just do like a nice little incision there and you know if it's um two lungs you get two incisions and he goes yeah we just kind of like lift the muscle up pull the ribs apart and slip it in they don't they don't even crack any ribs or anything like that so that was like mind-blowing to hear that when you went in for the evaluation i bet that was a small sort of relief out of all the you know out of all the badness sort of thing (laughs) yeah right one little silver lining yeah yeah at least i don't have to have my ribs broken open exactly mad and then so you went home so you must be on anti-rejection tablets like most uh, transplant patients yep yeah, yeah. They, they sent me home. Um, luckily, I was, I think, most nervous about going home with the pills because I was like, you know, they they give you a little like uh, course beforehand to kind of teach you, you know, this is the, obviously everybody's a different case. But, you know, these are the general terms of, you know, you're going to have to take a lot of pills. And I was just, oh, my gosh, like, how am I going to remember all of these pills? And but I, I found in my hospital, they did a an excellent job of preparing you. Um, so every time the nurses actually came in, you know, just doing their rounds and, you know, bringing your medication in the hospital, they would physically point the pills out to you and say, okay, this is your, your tacrolimus. This is how much you take. What is this? So it was like a quiz every yeah, day. Yeah. That way you get familiar with them. And then uh, the pharmacist actually helped me set up my first pill box in hospital before I left. Um, and they let me go with, you know, a big instruction sheet of this is your dosage, this is the time and all of that. So I have to say for being as worried as I was, it it ended up like now it's one of those things that I, I don't know if you feel the same way. Like I can just do this without even thinking about it. Uh, yeah. like 
Yeah, it's definitely very daunting when you, you know, get given a big box full of drugs and, you know, you're like, oh my God, how am I going to remember all this? How am I going to keep it organized? And that is the key, isn't it, really? It's just trying to be organized. Like, right. like you right. say, the pill pots are absolutely brilliant for that. Exactly. I, I love them. I love them. And that's, that's one of the things that uh, I told them that jokingly and kind of half jokingly that this couldn't have happened to a better person because I am like Miss Organization <laughs> over here. So I, I love having all, I have, you know, my, my pill drawer where I have my backups and, you know, my refills and everything like that. And I actually, it's, uh, my family makes fun of me because <laughs> I have a notebook that they instruct you to, you know, fill out a notebook um, right after you get out of the hospital and, you know, you go to all your visits and they want you to keep track of your vitals and things. And we're, I'm four years post-transplant now and I'm still keeping my notebook every day with oh, really? all and all my notes. So That's really interesting. That's good though. It is. Yeah, yeah. Did you write down your thoughts as well? Or is it like, you know, actually how you're feeling as, as, as well as the sort of actual stats? about like physical things so I mean every once in a while I'll put like oh I had a great you know therapy visit and this is what we spoke about but you know most of the time it's you know if I had a little uh, oh you know allergy season is kicking in over here so you know had to take a little extra Benadryl today because you know I felt sneezy or something like that but it's just for me it's a good way because right now with you know how well I'm doing I go back to clinic every three months so wow. that's you know that's a lot of time to to remember everything you know yeah. in between visits so for me it's a good thing to kind of you know the night before a visit I'll kind of leaf through the last three months and be like oh, okay nothing of note was in my you know book and you know I'll go through my list of questions if I have any questions for my clinic so it's just a good way for me to keep on top of anything that I should be notifying my team about. Is your clinic local when you have to go for the three months check? Not uh, kind of ish. It's uh, it's about an hour and a hour and fifteen minutes away. Yeah, so. that's about the same as mine. It's fairly <laughs> local. I mean, for America, that's definitely local, considering <laughs> some people have to fly from you know different parts of the states and. Right, right, yeah. So for for me, it's it's fairly local. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's handy, especially yeah. as you are going every three months. Have they said will that ever change to like once a year? No. So for, for my clinic, that's their, like, I mean, I think I've heard of some patients going every like four months or something yeah. like that. Um, but really they like to keep, you know, keep a close eye on us. Um, I'm not sure if that's different for any of the other organs. I know for lungs specifically, I don't think they'll let you go any further than three months. Just because honestly, I I've had, um, since the transplant, I had two, bouts of rejection and we found it extremely early i wasn't even symptomatic didn't even have any changes on my my home spirometry um and the only way we found it was at the pft at the hospital i guess it must be a little bit you know more fine-tuned so i think that's really why they don't let you go too much longer because you know the earlier you catch something the you know the better you can treat it yeah so what happened when you had these bouts of rejection was you in hospital hospitalized no. Luckily, I, uh, they caught it so early that, you know, basically they, they saw on the PFT that my, um, my numbers went down a little bit, you know, there's always like, I guess a threshold. So yeah. they went a little bit below the threshold and my, uh, pulmonologist brings me in for like a biopsy. They go, you know, almost like down your nose into your lung. They take, uh, you know, a few biopsy samples and they found the rejection 
And because it was like a very low level, I guess, I think there's a, like they start at A1, which is like the lowest type. And that's the type that I had both times. And so all they did was basically send me a prescription of a, um, a prednisone or a steroid blast. Yeah. So I started at like 60 milligrams and then tapered down all the way to my regular dose. And uh, I think after that, six to eight weeks later, you go back for a rebiopsy. And then it was cleared up by that time. So luckily, I did not have to spend any time in hospital. That's really good. But 60 milligrams of um, steroids, is <laughs> that's a strong dose. It's uh, it's very interesting around the house for a few days. Yeah, I bet. My, uh, my husband and my mom's favorite story is that uh, I was on like a prednisone blast for a bout of rejection and we had ordered dinner from, you know, a local pizza place and I got a cheesesteak sandwich and it was made wrong and I literally opened the sandwich and started crying yeah. <laughs> because prednisone just you know your emotions are absolutely insane so uh so crying over a cheesesteak was uh <laughs> was what happened yeah I mean to be fair that's that's fairly valid reason I think I'd cry naturally <laughs> if my cheesesteak sandwich especially if you've been thinking about it all day and it's been something you're looking <laughs> forward to the disappointment you get it you get it yeah definitely yeah yeah I have sympathy on you for you there <laughs> That's brilliant. And then, um, so did you have any other side effects from the steroids, like uh, sleeping or, you know, or poor sleep or anything like that? With the, with the blasts, I usually get insomnia for like one or two nights. Luckily, I don't. I know I've heard people who like, even on their regular doses, get pretty bad insomnia from the, from the steroid. Um, so I didn't struggle with that too much, but I will definitely get like the moon face after I think like a week or two of it and then I just feel like it takes forever to <laughs> to go back away but yeah. I I feel like luckily those are those are really the only you know big uh big reactions that I have to it yeah so what medication are you on currently currently I'm on um <clears throat> The uh, program for tacrolimus, the anti-rejection. Yeah. Um, I'm on mycophenolate, another anti-rejection. Uh, prednisone, the steroid. Um, let's see what else. I'm on a couple of or one antibiotic and one antiviral. Um, the valgancyclovirs for the CMV virus, because my donor and I were actually mismatched in that. Apparently, she had had CMV, and somehow I never had caught it in my life right. so I most people I think in my clinic get to go off of that after one year but because I was mismatched I have to just stay on that forever um let me see let me see I think a lot of the other ones oh I'm on a couple of blood pressure medications because that was one of the side effects that I did get from I think the um the tacrolimus I have increased blood pressure now um, and then a lot of the other ones are a whole bunch of the supplements that we take, you know, to make sure, you know, my bone density doesn't like degrade and, you know, we're keeping everything else healthy while the, you know, medications do take their toll. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. So it's quite a lot of medication. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And out of interest, uh, as a liver transplant patient, there's sort of certain foods we can't have. Uh, and I don't know whether that's because it's processed through the liver or whether they just tell you this because of they don't want you to get food poisoning. Is that <laughs> is there something that you, you know, did they tell you about sort of diet? Yep, definitely. We um, 
for for me, I know I needed to be, I think it was the first year was like the most restrictive on what I could and couldn't eat. Um, it got a little bit better, but still like I can't have, you know, we can't do any anything raw, nothing yeah. raw. You have to have everything well cooked. Um, you know, fruits and veggies, I can now eat like raw fruits and veggies, but they have to be thoroughly washed and things like that. I think for us, the the biggest thing is like from eating unwashed fruits and vegetables is actually not so much. I was like, oh, it's it's got to be the pesticides, right? And they were like, no, it's actually we're more worried about you breathing in ingesting dirt that can go into your lungs and spark a fungal infection. Uh, um, yeah. yeah. So so and then along that lines, like no more blue cheese because <laughs> that is a fungus and um, things like that. And actually, my clinic is. So I found out one of the more restrictive and actually we're not allowed, I'm not allowed to drink any alcohol of any kind either, um, which kind of bodes well because my liver numbers every once in a while have, have gone a little wacky. So I'm like, you know what, if if I have to give that up, that's fine. Yeah, it's, it's interesting how every hospital is different because mm-hmm. um, you always see on transplant groups and it gets a bit heated sometimes about oh, people, you know, kind of argue over what they've been told. And it's like, you know, sorry, my dog's just knocking into me. Oh, um, no. Yeah, so they get, you know, they you get, everyone gets told different. And um, I think it's just about, about being sensible, isn't it, really? That's it. Exactly. I mean, they, they I've, I, because I'm a very much a rule follower and like, will not do anything or step a toe out of line unless my transplant center approves it. But even with them, my, you know, I've, I've kind of been more restrictive and I'm like, oh, well, can I do this or can I do that? And they're like, Rachel, we, we gave you a transplant to like live your life. Just go live your life. We know you're going to make the right decision. So I, like you said, I th- it's all about taking the instructions that they give you and just making smart decisions. Yeah. And is everything like flying okay? Yeah, actually, I mean, pre-COVID times, we yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> definitely, uh, you know, after after my transplant, we um, we you have to wait one year. Once you're past the one year mark, then they kind of, um, you know, as long as you're, you know, flying. I, I mean, I always told them where we were going because I know some some places like if you go into like Asia in certain areas, you have to get like specific vaccinations. Yeah, and things yeah. Like that. But we've. Um, you know, I've gone down, my sister um, got married down in, in Louisiana in the south of the United States. Um, my husband and I were over in Northern Ireland. Um, exactly. So we've, we've, uh, we've traveled around and that's definitely one of the things I can't wait to do once, uh, you know, all COVID is gone or yeah. better. Yeah. And how, how's everything been COVID wise for you guys there? Have you managed to avoid everyone that's had it or? So yeah. <laughs> so far so good yeah yeah because obviously covid sort of very lung orientated as well isn't it so i yeah. mean because i i got covid over christmas time but luckily for me I, d- I wasn't really that ill um but i can imagine for yourself it's something you definitely definitely want to avoid absolutely yeah it was definitely you know when it kind of came around last march it was you know a big concern of my uh you know my clinic we got on the phone and it was kind of like okay you know for the next month or so you know whatever the lockdown period was we were even though we we never fully locked down over here but you know it was kind of like a self-imposed lockdown and um you know we've just pretty much like my husband and i have been in with our two pups and 
you know, everybody that we've kind of seen over the last year, it's been really just a couple of outings like in our backyard or like a parent's backyard and with masks, six feet apart, like, you know, fully distanced, fully, uh, you know, all the precautions we were following. Um, but it, it is definitely a huge worry. And I mean, I've, I've had people that are in the same clinic that did get COVID and, you know, one, one gentleman was extremely lucky and he didn't really get a bad case of it. And somebody else, uh, you know, ended up back on oxygen. And that's just, to me, like the scary, the scariest prospect. So, um, so we're definitely, you know, I feel like it's getting better. And honestly, the vaccinations are really giving me a lot of hope that, you know, hopefully soon we'll be out of the, uh, you know, out of the worst of it. Um, but, you know, it, it definitely we need to still follow all those precautions until until everything is, you know, settled a bit more in my mind. Yeah, I see that you had your, uh, you've had one vaccination. I had two. Oh, you've had two now. Brilliant. Yes, yes. We got my second one uh, just a few days ago. Oh, wow. Oh, yes, yes, yes. You mentioned <laughs> that in the, in the message. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. And you, and you felt fine, you said. Um, no, um, no side yeah, effect. Nothing. I mean, I got a very sore arm, which I had after the first shot. And the day that I got it, I just kind of felt very wiped out and exhausted. Um, but, you know, I kind of slept it off, took some Tylenol. And, you know, two days after that, I, I felt absolutely nothing. So great, great reaction, in my opinion. Yeah. So I suppose your husband's still waiting. He actually, he has received his first one, luckily, and um, will be getting his second one shortly in like a couple of weeks. So yeah. hopefully then, you know, we'll, we'll be able to do a little bit more, you know, within, within reason. <laughs> yeah. Did they, out of interest, did they like prioritize you as a vulnerable person or did, you, did it just come around as, as it did? Because I've had they, mine before a lot of other people here. Yeah, they, they're doing like a, um, I, I guess you want to call it like a tiered system over here as well. Um, so like the first the first people over here to get it were really like the, the healthcare workers, the frontline doctors, nurses, EMTs. Um, and then they've slowly been opening them up, you know, every couple of weeks or so. And um, so I was, I forget when they opened. I think it actually opened in... January, like the end of January for like my group, but then it was, you know, we were technically allowed to get it, but then it was the race to find the vaccine yeah. because just trying to get like an appointment somewhere was incredibly difficult. Uh, so you had to book it yourself. So there would be clinics with it going and it'd be like first come first served or, you know, book an appointment. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I, I had actually talked to my, I spoke to my doctor just a, a couple weeks after they had opened up the, uh, the tier for, for my state. And she was like, you know, I, I asked her, I was like, should I wait until like, is the clinic going to offer it? Should I be waiting? And she was like, honestly, you're probably going to get it way quicker if you just book it yourself through the States. Mm. So that's what I, that's the route I ended up going. That's good that you have that option. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. And you mentioned that you stayed at home with your dogs. Now, I know um, transplant patients or when I was transplanted, they kind of said, you know, you, it might be best to avoid animals. And this is and then I see the questions where people are like, can I ever have a dog? Is it safe yeah. to have a dog? And, you know, obviously I've got a dog and it is safe yeah. to have a dog. Did you, did you have them around the whole time? Was you precautious at all? Or Yeah, I did. So we had uh, we had our first dog pre-transplant. I think we, we had gotten him 
honestly, like three months before I was put on oxygen. So, so he, he was also a big emotional help through, through everything. Um, but so that was obviously one of my first questions was I have a dog, you know, what is, you know, is this safe? Is it, I mean, not that, not that he was going to go anywhere, but, um, but my doctor was, you know, I think the only animals they really discourage you from having are birds because, with the wings and flapping, like they can kind of spread some things around. Um, cats are also fine as well. They said it, you just like can't clean the litter box. I actually I can't pick up after the dog, so that's that, a good that, excuse. That, that is that's a great excuse. That's the best excuse I've ever heard. I, I can't do that. You don't have to do it, honey. So, so that, but I mean, other than that, you know, it's just kind of, I guess, like sensible sanitation. Like, I never let the dogs lick me in the face. I, you know, if I'm petting them and then I go, you know, cook food, you wash your hands first. Just, you know, things, things that are kind of, you know, a little bit, I, I would say, like common sense sanitation rules. But they, they had absolutely no problem with, uh, with me having the dogs. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, that's brilliant. Well, thank you very much for talking to me. Uh, to me, I've got one question more: is um, sure. if if there was anything that you could have sort of told yourself pre-transplant, is there anything that you would have? I know I've put you on the spot here a bit. I know, I know, it's a tough question. Um, honestly, it's it's something that I've told to other pre-transplant patients that I've talked to, and it's just trust uh, trust your center. I have a big, you know respect for my doctor my nurses everybody because they they really are like i'm a little bit of a control freak and so it was hard for me to to wrap my head around that there are things that are going to happen post transplant that you know you're going to get sick you're probably going to get rejection at some time and all of that seems so daunting and life-altering but trust your clinic because they honestly have they have your best interests at heart and you know they'll they'll do the right thing to get you on the right path to to where you're supposed to be yeah that's great advice and you're right it is very daunting it's very scary but you know you're doing very well you look very happy you look very healthy it's great yes yes definitely feeling happy and healthy brilliant well thank you very much for chatting to me i'll let you get back to your dogs now <laughs> thanks danny <laughs> see you later Bye bye Bye-bye.